Uh, Turn in your Bibles to John 6, uh, verses 35 through 51. Uh, The context of the passage that we are considering um, is preceded by Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 in verses 1 through 15 of the sixth chapter of John. Then, in verses 16 through 21, Jesus walks on water, and we are at the peak of Jesus' popularity. Verse 15, they Uh, There's a group of them that want to come and force him to uh, seize the throne. They want to make him king. Uh, Verses 22 through 24, the the, the crowds follow him across the Sea of Galilee. They they want to see more of him. Uh, However, in verse 26, Jesus sees through the intensity of their interest to their carnal motivations. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your full of the loaves, fill of the loaves. In other words, you're following me just because you got a free lunch and you're hoping you're going to get some more. You like the food that I serve and you got it for free until you're back again because you're thinking that maybe there'll be some more free food to fill your, 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 your stomachs. And then he goes on and... and, and speaks of the real purpose of his ministry. In verse uh, 27, he says, do not labor for the food that perishes. In other words, don't, don't labor, don't, don't, don't exercise yourselves uh, for the sake of an ordinary meal, uh, for, for, for food that, that nourishes the body but, but perishes, and the impact of which perishes very quickly as well. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You see, eternal life is the issue. He then, uh, in verses 28 through 31, as we read earlier, he points to the sign of manna that came down from heaven that was, uh, you know, a, a physical, a physical uh, provision that God made for his people when they were wandering in the wilderness that, that uh, f- fed them and, and, and satisfied their physical hunger But then in verse 32, Jesus identifies himself as the true bread from heaven. In other words, the manna, that just symbolized a greater bread, the bread that would come from heaven, the true bread, the far more important bread, the vital bread, the necessary bread that comes from heaven. So Jesus is hinting at his pre-existence as he does this. Uh, where did he come from? Well, he came from heaven. He's the true bread that came from heaven. And if we've been paying attention at, uh, to John's gospel, we looked, looked at this passage last week, but John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, and verse 14, the Word, same Word that was in the beginning with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he's pointing toward his, his pre-existence. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not begin to exist in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He existed before then. He was with God. He was in heaven. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son, uh, no less. And so he's pointing to the, the, the depth of his identity and the, the reality of, of his identity. Chapter 3, verse 13, he said that he descended from heaven. In the 11th century, a 
Christian pastor theologian by the name of Anselm wrote a book titled in Latin, Cordeus Homo, uh, meaning uh, why God man or why did God become man? What is the reason behind the incarnation? Uh, to put it in our terms, uh, what's the reason behind Christmas? Why did the Son of God become man? Why did God become flesh? Why did the, the Word become flesh and dwell among us? Uh, so, uh, beginning at verse 33, Jesus speaks of the, the meaning of, the reason for his mission as well as uh, his true identity. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Again, there's his pre-existence. And gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, verse 34, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is the bread of heaven. He comes down from heaven. Um, he is the bread of God. He comes down from heaven. He gives life to the world. Uh, so there's a number of different ways that uh, you can preach Christmas sermons. And uh, I've been preaching them for about 40 years in this building for 37 years, Christmas after Christmas. Uh, always looking at another way to say something about the shepherds or the magi or the angels um, and it's a bit of a challenge to be, say something fresh, but I think one of the things that we can do is we can look at Jesus' own words when he speaks of himself and his identity and why he came and what he came to do. Uh, if we want to get behind uh, the meaning of all the, 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 the celebrations uh, that we enjoy in, the, in this season of the year, we, we can look at Jesus' own words when he describes why it was that he came and what it is that he, he came to do. So I, I want to unfold this under just two, two main headings. Number one, he came to give life. And number two, uh, he came to give life. All right, so number one, he came to give future life. So he says that he, 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 he came to give life, verse 34, to give life to the world. What does he mean by that? I mean, we are alive, aren't we? Yes, we are. But not for long. Right? Life is short. Uh, you know, we're, we're reminded on a regular basis of the, of the brevity and uncertainty of life. Even if we die in old age, uh, by, what under, by whatever standard we measure agedness, life is short. Uh, we, we are like a wind that just passes uh, through. We're like the lily of the field that, uh, that is, uh, springs up and, and, and then it's gone. You know, I, I, I wake up each morning thinking I'm still 18 years old. And then I start to move. And, and then I, and, I, and my body sends me a very quick reminder, I'm not 18 years old anymore. This is the problem for the weekend warrior, isn't it, as we used to call them? You know, the 45-year-olds who think they can go out and play full-court full basketball or 
you know, a touch football game, and they go and they, you know, they, they, feel, they, feel, they feel they're still 18 years old, and they're out there and they're aggressively pursuing the sport, and the next day, what? They can hardly move. And the day after that, they got to go see the doctor because they sprained an ankle or they sprained the knee or some other, some other bodily part is now no longer functioning properly because, well, they don't have the flexibility, they don't have the endurance, they don't have the strength uh, that, they, that they once had. Life is racing by so very quickly. You know, I look back and I think, you know, just yesterday, Emily and I got married. So it seems. Just yesterday, I started here at the Independent Presbyterian Church. It's 37 years ago now. It seems like it was just a couple of, couple of weeks ago. Time just races by. It was just yesterday. You know, our house was full of young children. Now, they're all grown. They're all married. Now, there are grandchildren. The time is just racing by. Uh, life will be over before you know it. Uh, this will be, be the first time our house will be basically empty on Christmas Day. It's our off year. You know, everyone's elsewhere for Christmas. And next year we have them. Uh, we have, um, we had all of them for Thanksgiving. All 22 of us were together for Thanksgiving. In light of that, Christmas being just me and Emily sounds pretty good, actually. I'm quite, quite, quite looking forward to, to peace and calm and, and, and quiet. Um, but my point is, where, where did all the time go? Time is just passing. It's just passing by. Jesus is addressing the issue of future life. Is this life all that there is? Is there nothing beyond this? Do we just live and die and then, then life is extinguished and it doesn't go on at, at all? Or, 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 and, and what is next? Well, Jesus is addressing that, that question. Look at verse 37. He says, There all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There he's, he's speaking of this eternal bond. When we die, we enter into eternity. Consciousness lives on. Where do we go? Um, you know, I think one of the questions is, it's being asked, I don't, by virtually everybody. Does consciousness live on? Do I live beyond this life? And the answer of the Bible is, and the answer of Jesus here is, yes, we do. And there's this, there is life in eternity. We call it eternal life. Life goes on. Where will we be? Will we be with God or will we be apart from God? Will we be in heaven? Will we be in hell? Here he's speaking of the security of those who are believers. All the Father gives me. They come to me. They come to have faith in me. And of course, the background to all this is, is Adam and Eve and the fall and the entrance of sin into the world and our separation from God and our hostility toward God and our alienation from him. All that and sin and guilt and corruption and, and Jesus comes and, and he provides the sacrifice for sin that is necessary to bring about the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God and the gift of eternal life. And he's speaking here of the certainty and the security of all those who come to him and receive those gifts. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's the certainty of salvation. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We are safe and secure. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, 
You see, again, his pre-existence. We don't speak of ourselves having come down from heaven. You know, people that talk like that, we put in a padded cell. Jesus, however, can say of himself, I came down from heaven. I was sent on a mission. I, I existed before I arrived here. I was in, in, in heaven, and I was, I was with God, and I am God the Son, and I've come down from heaven, and I have a mission. There's a, there's, a, there's a task that I have to accomplish. I'm not doing my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He, you see, he speaks there again of being sent. There's another way of saying it. The will of him who sent me. I've come down from heaven. I descended from heaven. I was sent that I should do what? That I should lose nothing of all that he, the Father, has given to me. I infallibly and with certainty will save all who come to me, who put their faith and trust in me. He speaks of himself being sent, again in verse 44, and again in verse 57. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Pointing there to the reunion of the body and of the soul in the presence of God in, in eternity. Drop down to verse 47. Uh, there, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's the whole point. That's the mission. That's the reason behind the incarnation, to impart eternal life, life that goes on forever and ever, life with God, true life, future life. 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. That was just a type. That anticipated the true bread from which true life is derived. You see, they ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread that, once again, he says, comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Not die. That, those are remarkable words. Eat and not die. It, it anticipates what Jesus says in chapter 11 when he says, I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me shall live even if he die, and the one who lives and believes in me shall never, what? Die. Shall never die. He's anticipating those words, but he's saying it right here as well, uh, that, that the one who believes, uh, that, that, that one who, who eats of the bread of life, which, which I embody, will not die. In other words, the impact of the life, ministry, and mission of Jesus so transforms death that for the believer, death is like non-death. It's as though you don't die at all. You merely change your address. Your, your, your consciousness never ends. It just moves from this world into the next world. You go from life here to life there. You, you're in the presence of, of uh, loved ones or, or whoever happens to be there at the time of your death, the doctors and nurses or whoever it might be. 
Your consciousness just moves from there to the next world. It's as though you don't even die because life just goes on. There's continuity between this world and the next world. That's, a, that's the transformation of death. It no longer is a curse for us. It, it's lost its sting is the way the Apostle Paul uh, puts it in, in uh, uh, first, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. He, he says uh, to live is Christ but to die is gain. He says to depart and to be with him is far better. Why, why would it be far better? Because it's a better life. Because it's a better world. Because it's a better existence than uh, the one that we, uh, th that we uh, endure here in this world. Verse 51. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That is my flesh offered in sacrifice. So what's Jesus, what has he come to do? Well, he's on a rescue mission to relieve us of the consequences of the fall and of our own sin in, in, in light of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of the, our accountability to a holy God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, for, who says the wage of sin is death. And so he takes on humanity that the, the sentence of condemnation and damnation might fall upon him rather than on us. He came to pay the wage of sin for all who repent and turn and believe. I came that you might have life. Again, another statement about the, the nature of the incarnation. What's the meaning? I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. There's, it speaks of the richness of life. And the fullness of that life entered into now and extending into eternity. So in eternity, it is a better life. We move from this world to the next world in light of the incarnation and the whole life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. And he then ushers us into the presence of God, in whose presence, according to Psalm 1611, is the fullness of joy, and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, the apostle, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To depart and be with him is far better. Here's the way uh, John, the apostle, describes things at the end of the book of Revelation. He says, the dwelling place of God is with man. Where is heaven? Heaven is where God is. Heaven is where Christ is. He will dwell with them. They will be with his people. You think of the, of the person who is the most charming person in all the world to you, whose presence you would rather be in than with anyone else at any time else. Well, God is infinitely superior to that. And to be in his presence is to be, there can be no better place to be. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's a different world than the world we inhabit. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Liberated from this veil of tears, liberated from our aging, aching bodies. They all passed away. Continuing, verse 5, Revelation 21. Behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can rely on them. You can depend upon them. There's no 
question is about whether or not these words are going to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled, infallibly so. It is done, he says. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The water they're representing, that which satiates and satisfies the the body here, he's talking about spiritual water that satisfies and quenches the thirst of the soul. Uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and, and he will be my son. So better life and reunion. There'll be a reunion. First Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul, verse 17 there says that we will be with departed loved ones, together with them, with the Lord. I think, um, you know, Christmas time, the whole holiday season is, is often a melancholy time for many, many people. And, you know, I try to analyze why that is. It's fairly obvious, but some of us, you know, figure these things out rather slowly. But you, but you just think about the traditions, they go back to childhood. Your earliest memories, some of the earliest memories you have are of Christmas. And you have all the same things happening all through the decades. And so you're singing the same songs, basically. You're singing them year after year after year. Uh, you're, you've, you've got the same symbolism. So you've got the trees, and you've got the ornaments, and you've got the wreaths, and you've got you know, all, the, all the various kinds of decorations. You've got many of the same foods and many of the same drinks. And, and so you have these memories, and they go back to when you were just tiny children, and then right through your youth and into the adult years, and then you have your own family, and then it's you, and then it's you and your, your spouse, and then it's your children, and then all the years when the children were young. And, 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 and then on into adult years, and, 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 then, and, and then you get older and older, and you face the reality of, of uh, not having those with whom you celebrated all those years. They're now gone. You know, we have members who have had had 60 years of Christmases with their spouse, and now they're gone. So you have that flood of memories that, that comes over you. And, and so it can be a, a time of, of, of melancholy uh, because of, of the memories that we have of all that came before and I think we take some, some comfort in knowing that eternal life means that, that this is not the end of those relationships. Those who before us, with whom we were related and with whom we celebrated, those who die in Christ, we will see them again. That's the promise that we have here, and this is what Jesus came to do. So, so number one, Point number one is that he came to bring us future life, but also he came to bring present life. Life in the present, true life in the, in the present, the life that is worth living. So go back to verse 27 of this chapter where, where Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes. In other words, don't labor for temporary food 
food that immediately satisfies, but it doesn't last, rather for the food that endures, that is permanent, that lasts, that continues unabated to satisfy. I think he's uh, echoing the prophecy of Isaiah, the great invitation of the 55th chapter, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, that is, that is, you, 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 don't, you don't have the worldly commodities. He who has no money is unable to buy this food, this drink. You come and buy and eat because these are spiritual commodities. The water that I provide, it's a spiritual water. The food that I provide, it's a spiritual food, and you don't need money in order to enjoy it, because it's not a worldly entity. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual entity. So, he says, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why, he asks, do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food that is spiritual food that is food for the soul so he says in verse 35 i am the bread of life he who comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst i think this is profound psychological insight he's talking about the human condition what is the human condition hunger. He's not talking about physical hunger, but it's, it, it provides a metaphor. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful analogy of what has happened, what the reality is for us spiritually. We're spiritually hungry. We're spiritually thirsty. That's our condition in this world. Uh, we are, there's a spiritual longing in our souls. And he's, uh, he's butting up against the temptation that we have to try to satisfy the spiritual hunger with material things, with physical things. And think that we can, we, can, we can find fulfillment, that we can find satisfaction. But he says that he is the bread of life. In other words, the one and only bread of life. You're not going to find that satisfaction, that fulfillment. You're not going to quench the hunger. You're not going to satisfy the thirst of the soul through worldly food in whatever form that food may come. So it may be in the form of success. It may be in the form of worldly things. It may be in the form of recognition. It may be in the form of pleasure. We recognize this. The world is in pursuit of all those sorts of things, thinking that by doing so, then they'll be happy. Then they'll be fulfilled. Then they'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. Now, this is what I warn young couples when they're getting married. You're getting married thinking that this person is going to satisfy you, that then you'll be happy. Then you'll be satisfied, then you'll be content, then all will be well, then life will be wonderful. It's not going to happen. Why? Because you're not marrying the bread of life. You're not marrying Jesus. He alone is the bread of life that can satisfy the hunger and quench the thirst of the soul. And he promises that the one who comes to him will not hunger and will not thirst. In other words, what he's talking about is even the impact of faith in Christ has in this world, in this life. He came not only to give us future life, but abundant life in this world so that, his, so that believers, those who come to him, are the ones 
It may be counterintuitive to all the world, but are living the life that is worth living. Because they have, a, they have a profound measure of satisfaction, a profound measure of fulfillment. The hunger of the soul has been satisfied. The thirst of the soul has been quenched by the bread of life, by the living water. And so they're not uh, dripping with need. They're not rushing about in some kind of frenetic pace, trying to find meaning, trying to find satisfaction, uh, trying to find fulfillment. The book of Ecclesiastes warns us that everything under the sun is vanity and striving after the wind. It's all vanity. It's all empty. None of it amounts to anything. He, he details all the different ways that he's tried to find meaning in life, satisfaction in life, fulfillment in life. And the world can be very, very seductive. It's enticing. It appeals to our flesh. It presents that which appears to be uh, true life, uh, the life worth living. I mean, you see it in media every day. You see it in the television. You see it in the movies. The way life is portrayed, what is presented as the life, and it's always uh, full of pleasure and things and, and, and fame and fortune and, and all the rest. Realize what the world promises it cannot deliver. It promises real life, but it's a counterfeit. How do we know that? Because Jesus says he is the bread of life. It's, it's an extraordinary claim. It's, it's become in many ways my favorite verse. Jesus is the bread of life, the bread of life. In him we have the life worth living, and it's in to total surrender to him that we find the life that's worth living. As we come to him by faith and repent and turn from our, our self and our sin, it's counterintuitive. You would think that finding life, the life worth living, that's all about doing what I want to do. It's all about satisfying myself. It's all, it's all about, uh, you know, fulfilling all of my, my desires, me pursuing and fulfilling my desires. You see, that's what, that's what the world has to say. That's, what, that's the way that things appear to be. So it is counterintuitive. No, Jesus says, you want to find true life? It's found in surrendering to me. It's found in giving up your autonomy. It's found in turning from uh, the, the, the path, uh, the broad path that leads to destruction, turning away from sin, turning, turning away from your idols and your lusts and turning to me in repentance and faith and, and, and surrendering your life over to me. That's where you find true life. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the living water. And all all else, everything else is a counterfeit. So why, why did the Son of God become a man? Why did the Word take flesh and dwell among us so that we might have life? So that we might escape the living death that we live by nature? So that we might have eternal life? So that we might have true life in this world? That's why. He, he came on a rescue operation. And those who are rescued are those who believe. Uh, those who don't believe, they're not rescued. They don't get the benefit of this. The benefit comes in, in, in understanding the futility of life and the emptiness of life and the vanity of life and turning from this world to Jesus that we might enjoy true life and life in the world to come as we pray together.
our Father in heaven. These are great, uh, wondrous things that we contemplate together. The Word made flesh, the bread of life. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, turn our wills away from self and sin to the Savior. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to receive the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.